Hello, and welcome to Metachemistry. This is episode six. In this episode, we will turn our attention to a fundamental of infinity gameplay, namely deployment. Deployment is a foundational component of playing the game of infinity. It's actually where we get the word fundamental. You could even argue that it is the phase where the game really begins. Your setup, the choices you make of where to place particular pieces in certain positions, your attention to detail, each contribute brick by brick to laying the foundation for the game that is about to unfold. Dialing in your approach to this early stage of gameplay will go a long way in conditioning the field of play and granting you an edge over your opponent. And yet, as crucial as we all understand deployment to be, the details on what constitutes effective deployment still seem to elude. In fact, I would go as far as to say that most of the debriefs that I'm having these days with players in our community have to do with how poor deployment killed their chances to win. I would argue that for many right now, deployment may be the biggest contributing factor between winning and losing. Why is it that deploying well ends up being so challenging? And do we have anything more to say than get good? So tonight, we seek to focus our conversation on what makes for good deployment. To be sure, we will spend some time talking through the basics such as having a plan, being mindful of spacing and facing, limiting easy access to AROs, watching your deployment zones, etc. But we will also spend some extended time digging into some more situational and problematic aspects that come up in deployment that we hope will contribute to elevating your play. But before we dig into all of that, let's first check in with our lineup for this episode. Tonight is Nathan, Ian, and myself. Gentlemen, we have crossed the Rubicon. With the completion of the recording of this episode, episode six, we will have accomplished Nathan's only real wish for this podcast. Do you know what I mean by that, Nathan? Is this the episode past what the old Metachemistry got to? It's true. We've recorded more episodes than five. Yep. So we have much to celebrate. We have much to talk about. And speaking of episodes, this week we heard the news of the ending of a long-standing Infinity podcast. Pour one out for White Noise. Guys, any comments related to Ben, Marty, and the rest of the team with White Noise? What are your interactions with that podcast over the years and your thoughts on them wrapping it up with 169 episodes? I mean, that's the episode to end on, right? That's the right number. If you're if you if you gotta go, <laughs> if you gotta go. Uh, actually, I had a quick chat with Ben uh, over Facebook Messenger the other day, and uh, yeah, I'm just I'm really sad to to see them go. It's one of the only podcasts that I listen to probably frequently. Uh, I like their their variety of their show. There's just so many different things that they cover in so many aspects. It was always a very fresh fresh thing to listen to. So, yeah, I'm I'm super bummed they're gone. How about you, Ian? I can't say that I listened to it a whole lot, but they had, you know, some interesting ideas and approach to doing things, and it's always sad to see kind of a stalwart of the community and a content creator go by the wayside, but uh, good luck in their future endeavors. Yeah, it makes sense. It's a lot of work. That's why I'm grateful that we share the load between the four of us on this team. Because um, putting out a podcast, especially one that's weekly, is a lot of work. One of the things I really liked about White Noise was its international feel. There was no other podcast like that. 
kind of drew on the entire international community and touched bases with so many different metas and voices. There are also quite a few episodes out there that I feel like were pretty influential. I They helped crystallize some of my own ideas as my own gameplay was evolving over the years. It was interesting to have a conversation partner with some of the guys like Gavin and Rob Cantrell, who, even though I never talked to them, listening to them explore some of their high-level thinking about tactics and gameplay, and hearing a lot of echoes in what I was thinking for myself, it also helped sharpen some of my ideas too. And so I am grateful for the work they did. And I also got to chat briefly with um, Ben on Messenger as well. And um, I was able to comment that it was cool that they they did all that and they did some good too. They did a lot of charity work with their podcast and they used their platform to advance the common good. And I'm appreciative of that as well. So uh, cheers to you guys, as they say, out in Australia. So other than uh, white noise in the news, what are you guys thinking about? I want to check in with you and... Nate, you've been getting some stuff done with Shazvasti, painting up Shazvasti. We were talking off air about this. You want to highlight that? I've been kind of searching for the army that's going to like really carry me into N4 since real in-person gaming hasn't really started yet. But I wanted to ha- find something that was going to carry me through. And like with Devin, I talked about O12. We talked about O12 for a number of hours the other night and that just wasn't doing it for me and I've looked through a number of different armies and I just ended up going back to Shazvasti which is kind of my last army in N3 they just they have the toys that I want to play with and I love the models so I dug up my paintbrush started working on them normally I try and do a, a lot of airbrushing on my models but for these I decided to go Mostly brush, like the the Sphinx is going to have a little airbrushing on it, but everything else is mostly hand-painted and not as top quality as I can do, but it's more of a let's get it done because I want to have a, a completed Infinity Army ready for the table when we get back to it. Yeah, do you feel like having that completed paint job on your miniatures motivates you to get out there and play even more? Uh, maybe. I think it's more that like I keep looking at this whole long period of time and to not come out with a painted infinity army would be a bit of a tragedy for me. Cause I've, I painted a number of other armies for other games during this whole thing. So it's like, if infinity is my main game, why am I not, why do I not have a infinity army painted during this period of time? So uh, yeah, I just, I just decided that I was going to get done and add it to my painted case if nothing else. So yeah, we don't really have many excuses, do we? <laughs> <laughs> at the very beginning of this thing we should have started like a contest to just have everybody come out of this thing painted because uh, i just don't see why you shouldn't come out with something fully painted like there there's probably even time to start now you know yeah you're probably right ian let's check in on what's going on with you what have you been thinking about related to infinity kind of going on with nate i uh Really need to get on some painting. Uh, it's been an itch for me to do so. I just don't know where to start with what uh, I want to do for N4 specifically. Like I have an idea, but I like narrowing it down. And uh, it got really bad today. I was I was uh, perusing through the stacks of the uh, Tomb of Despair, 
that is my basement <laughs> that is just filled with models <laughs> that are not finished. So, yeah, I need to uh, get on some of that. <laughs> that was a Princess Bride reference. The Pit of Despair! So I want to get playing. That's been the big thing. It's been killer not being able to play. And obviously, I'm probably going to stick very closely to Ariadna. That is where I'm most comfortable. And I've been batting around some new lists and some of the stuff we can do that's kind of throwing out some lists that are a little disgusting. I think that they'll be kind of fun to put down on the table and see how they do. So I've gotten a few games of Panic Room in in my garage over the last couple weeks. And I have to say that uh, mission is definitely testing some of my conventional list building approaches. One of the things that I'm noticing is it incentivizes you obviously to push into the into the middle of the room because you're avoiding the biotech encroaching biotech vor and you're supposed to score points in the room. And so I'm taking units that cater to that kind of approach a little bit more. I've been running Yadus instead of my normal Dakini core for OSS. I'm just noticing that the cohesion of my lists don't feel quite the same. So I've been trying to kick around some alternative ideas with that. But one of the other things I was thinking about, I thought I'd raise it with you guys real quick, is it's really good to pay attention to the scoring criteria, especially at the new scoring criteria for N4. It's probably worth us doing a dedicated episode just on that. Because I noticed that when I was playing the two games that I played, I thought, I'm just going to bum rush the panic room and try to dominate it as much as I can. Of course, that's just killing fields. And I was having a hard time holding that room against uh, my opponent and then vice versa. On further reflection, I realized, you know, the scoring for that mission works like this. If you, you get three points for having more army points at the end of the game, get two points for every round that you hold, one point for if you hold it, and the second point for if you hold it with the special liaison or scorer. And then you get another point for your classified. And I, as I was sitting back thinking about it, I realized, you know, in the new scoring system, you just need to get to five at most six points to secure yourself a major victory. And really all that requires then is holding the room one round and having more points than your opponent by the end. So it kind of shifted a little bit of how I was thinking about how to approach that mission. And it really goes a long way to set, at least for me, that you, doing well with these missions and tournament play is attending to the details, like how, how are you going to score and what do you really need to get done rather than what you think you need to get done. I just thought I'd throw that out there. I will counter with, while yes, you only need five or six points to score a major victory, the scoring system still is a little more complex than that, and every point does count. And so if you can push that 10 points, it'll still put you higher in the rankings versus everybody else that got a major victory that only got five or six points. So every point still matters, and you still want to get maximized as much as you can. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay, well, enough of that. Let's get to our main topic. We're going to be talking about deployment as we talked in the opening. So I had a couple questions for both of you. As we take a wide-angled view at this topic to start, 
What is your general philosophy, if you have one, when it comes to deployment? And how has that evolved or changed over time? Nate, how about you kick us off? Do you have a general philosophy towards deploying and has that changed? I mean, originally it was put sniper in tower, shoot bad guys, five man link team, three heavy weapons, deploy, you know, deploy to see the board as much as I can. But more recently, my deployment philosophy is make my opponent spend as many orders as humanly possible to even get shots on my guys. So even if they kill one of my arrow pieces, they spend a number of orders doing that so I can bleed them of orders. I don't usually have somebody who's looking all the way across the table. Uh, and if I do, it's probably a TO camo noctifer or, you know, something similar that I can use at the correct time. Yeah, you get to control that engagement. So I don't I don't try and keep my head entirely down. I just try and cover shorter range brackets with possibly even camo markers and other things to make my opponent spend a bunch of orders so that if I kill him, he has to start over again. And if I don't kill him, he's at least spent a bunch of orders getting to me. I uh, resonate quite a bit with what you just outlined, the, the evolution of how I thought about AROing in particular and what you were saying there, that the whole premise of the ARO is not necessarily to kill, but to delay and, and have your opponent spend as many orders as possible, not accomplishing the mission. So uh, deployment's a big component of setting up your ARO system and how you're going to accomplish that objective. How about you, Ian? What are your thoughts, generally speaking, when it comes to deployment? See, that's a little bit of a hard question because I feel like my deployment is very different depending upon what the mission is. And my lists obviously will be different for different missions and will operate and deploy in very different ways. If I were just doing kind of a general deployment strategy kind of thing, then you used to do the whole thing like Nate was saying of, you know, sniper in a tower, guys up on buildings, you know, a lot of covering a lot of areas. And, you know, basically you're seeding the initiative to your opponent by allowing them to choose how they engage you. and over time, I've changed a lot of that to trying to limit where I, they can see me from and force bad decisions on my opponent of, do they want to move forward? And now they're going to run into this fire lane that I've set up that they're only going to be able to get like one guy into that fire lane before I can take my arrows instead of them being able to do, you know, multiple guys or, you know, whatever. And I'm, I'm forcing them to you know, allow me to choose the engagement instead of them choose the engagement. Do you feel like there were any particular traps that you fell into when, when deploying and kind of learning the ropes early on? Can you even remember what some of those were, if so, and, and how you've kind of evolved out of those traps? Putting things up high. Generally not a good idea because they said it allows your opponent to choose that engagement. But if you have your stuff on the ground floor, not only do you maintain your ability to move it to where you need it to be, but it allows you to slice the pie more effectively as you're playing. And you just have to really be smart in where you're placing your stuff at the start and choosing, you know, what do you want your opponent to be able to see? Nathan, when you talk to some of the members of the community and the broader Infinity community, what do you hear back when it comes to the questions regarding deployment? 
I kind of find it interesting that we all recognize deployment is a real important component of the game. And yet to this day, I would say, I still feel like we see a lot of mistakes happening when it comes to deploying. And and usually when, as I mentioned in the, the opening, usually when we do an autopsy of the game after, after we've played a game, we can see the the hints of the problem areas that are going to emerge as the game unfolds. And and more often than not, we reflect and go, gosh, I wish I had done this, or I wish I had deployed my guys in this way. So it seems like um, deployment's a tough thing for us to get our head around, even though we understand the basics of what you needed to be doing. What kind of feedback do you get? I think everybody follows a system. They put everything up and it gets shot up and then they do that a a game or two and then they put everything down and then they get stomped that way because they just lose any kind of board control and then they'll start putting things up and putting things back down i think you're probably just going to have to play games like that leaving things up then leaving them all down and and learning the hard way yeah um i don't think there's a way to skip that but the, I think those are the the most common like beginner noobish things that I hear is leave them all up, then put them all down. Ni- neither one of those things works. Yeah, that's a really good point, Nate. I think more than anything, I've learned how to d- deploy via trial and error and just learning from mistakes. And I th- I don't know if there's a way to get around that, but hopefully we can point everybody into some helpful directions as we unpack this a little bit more. What I thought we could do is talk a little bit about the basics. Like I said, everyone kind of knows what the basics are, but just so we can cover that ground and just say, yeah, we took care of this and got it out of the way. Let's talk through what we think are the basics of deployment. So I would start off by saying, we got to have a plan. You have to have a plan when you go into deploying. And what I mean by this is, you're not just putting things out willy-nilly. You have cohesive understanding of how your units are going to fit on the table, where they're going to be placed given the variables of different terrain, and kind of approach it with a basic idea, concept of what you want to do and how you want to accomplish it. So would you guys say that you at least approach the game with a plan in mind, even if you then change that plan as the game, the terrain, the mission, different variables unfold. Nathan, go ahead. My plan for deployment starts as I'm building a list, picking like different range bands. So I have, you know, different guys to cover different, different areas when I'm deploying them. Like even like the five man link team, that's part of your deployment plan. Like, is it, is it a defensive team? Like plan for a plan for it to sit in a bunk, you know, in a bunker. If it's an active team, plan to leave room on in your deployment to get them all in there, especially if you're not going first. But yeah, like my plan is starts from when I start building the list and it'll go until, you know, the reserve is placed. I will be looking when I walk up to the table, I'm going to be looking at both sides to see where where good places to deploy are, where I'm going to need to watch out for. Uh, so, like, review your table before you even start deploying or even pick sides. Like, take a look around the whole table. Ian, when you look at the table and you analyze it, what are the things you're looking for? 
as you're thinking about deploying? I'm looking at what's going to be the areas that are going to be the most advantageous for me to complete the objectives. And what I mean by that is if I need to get into the center of the board or the opponent's half of the board to get an objective, where are the best areas for me to advance safely or for me to deploy a forward deployment or infiltration trooper that is going to be where I need them to be to get to that objective? Or if I need to defend, where is the most advantageous areas that I can set those same kind of troopers up in order to set up ambushes and try to focus my opponent into moving into an area that I want them to by locking down fire lanes and different things like that. To add on to that, when I analyze a table, depending upon if I'm going first or second, I have a couple different basic ideas in mind. If I'm going first, I'm likely to be deploying somewhere closer to the middle of the board to give myself options to go right or left. I, f I have found that if I'm going first and I want to push into my opponent and I deploy on one side and then they counter deploy by turtling up on the other, I need to be able to at least have some tools that can go pressure them on that side as well. So I'm looking at like anticipating where is my opponent likely to set up their defense? Where are they going to defend from as I'm approaching them? And I'm trying to anticipate that. If I'm going second, I'm definitely looking at how are they going to how is my opponent going to come at me? And I've already likely seen not just the lay of the table, but also where my opponent has deployed. And now it gives me a sense of what are the lines of approach that they're going to take. One little tip I'd like to just throw in there is oftentimes when we talk about deployment and contesting the board, we, we usually think of lanes. I want to look down these different lanes. But most of us recognize that in terms of gameplay, we don't run down lanes. We actually approach and engage our opponent uh, at corners so that we have cover. So one of the things I'm always identifying is what are the most likely corners on buildings and, and other terrain that my opponent is going to use to engage me. And so then I'm thinking in, and anticipating, do I want to contest that part of the board or do I want to coax them out into, into the open a little bit by how I'm setting up my arrows? But a big part of deployment, I think we all can agree, is just being able to diagnose the table from the beginning. So then we talk, when we're talking about having a plan, I also think we you have to have a have a plan on how your your troops kind of map onto the table. Like one of the things I think we would all recognize and advice we'd give is avoid having models too close together. Why is that? Templates are awful when you get hit by them. There's a lot of AD that have them. Yep. So when you have your guys too close together, it's an inviting target for somebody that has. AD trooper like the Lucing that explodes when it drops, or somebody like Durok who walks in on your back line with a chain rifle, or uh, impersonator like Hassassin Fide that is in your lines with a boarding shotgun. It just makes things very easy for those kinds of troopers to take out multiple of your guys for what is ultimately a relatively cheap expenditure when their guy dies doing it. 
Yeah, once again, it's about making your opponent spend more orders to kill your guys, to burn more orders. So putting your guys too close together, if he gets a two-for-one, even if it's a risky, like he's gonna, he might lose a guy back, that's going to be good for him. So you, don't, you want to avoid as much as possible letting them shoot more than one model at a time. Yeah, if they're able to kill multiple troops with one order, that is just a death knell to your, like, to the efficiency. Like, you're on your back heels at that point. One of the things that I am super guilty of is not attending to your facing. And what I mean by that is, I think that when you're playing the game, you need to ignore how pretty your model is and go by the facing entirely because I often find myself cinematically posing my guy like his back to the wall and it's like that doesn't work he needs to be facing where the enemy is so make sure that whether you're using painted arcs or the new plastic bases that have arcs on them when you're moving your model you're only thinking about that base not that model and obviously like the big swords so you can't make him face the way you want him to is going to be an issue so you know, have a marker or something ready for that. But I, one of the biggest things that I catch kind of the, the newer to medium player with is getting behind them when there was no reason for me to be able to get behind them. They just didn't pay attention to the base. They paid more attention to their model. That's a big deal. Part of what attracts us to the game is the cinematic nature of it. But when it comes to deployment and actually playing the game, you have to almost negate that and just say avoid the cinematic posing and think totally in terms of geometry ian talk to me about how you think in terms of guarding your deployment zone uh there's several different ways that you can guard your own deployment zone a lot of it just comes down to the facing of your troopers if you have some guys that you know cheaper guys chain rifles things like that that can kind of be held back and make uh, the prospect of entering your deployment zone seem like a risky move, that can be a very good thing to do. Also having access to certain troopers that have the mine layer skill that can deploy with one of their mines out can help you close off certain lanes of advance on your opponent getting to your deployment zone. You also have to be very mindful of your back board edge now that there are multiple troops that are not Van Zant that can walk in on any board edge. I mean, that's a pretty big game changer, wouldn't you say? Like, especially from N3 to N4, the, the amount of parachutists that can walk in on your deployment now, I think I've noticed that that has definitely conditioned me to be way more attentive to the back line than I used to be. I think with just with the amount of AD and how good AD is now, that's the same, the same thing, you know, they're going to try and get behind you. And that leads to uh, another thing. If you have access to it, if you have troopers that have 360 visors, that helps out quite a deal um, because then they can't get behind you. One of my favorites for this is the uh, Tian Gao and the White Banner Army, because it's a trooper with a 360 visor that also happens to have hollow masks. So you can disguise it as something else and you know, your opponent kind of walks into that trap. And I think that's awesome. One of the tricks that I like to do when I'm watching my DZ is if I have a TO camo piece, uh, I will oftentimes leave the perfect opening for someone to 
either you know Van Zant or Airdrop or or just walk onto the table. I'll leave them this perfect place, and they think that that's going to be like just this perfect place for them to come on. And when they come on, that's when I reveal my TO marker with a boarding shotgun or a TO marker with a mine. Even your Noctifer. Yeah, maybe. Uh, it, the missile launcher specifically is is a bit longer a range, so you would have to be a little more careful how you set that up. But I used to do this a lot as nomads with like just a Spectre with either mines or a shotgun, and someone would walk on the table and you just blast them, and it's basically free. And they thought that they had a nice clear shot because... You know, there's nobody watching this position. Uh, the one thing I will say about that is make sure you've got your deployment pictures and everything because nobody likes getting that because that's such a gotcha. Like you walk on, it gets blown up. So, you know, make sure that people are playing that right. Playing it real clean. Yeah, the idea of using um, hidden deployment to bait your opponent into lines of approach that then you catch them out, whether that's at range, like with a missile launcher or up close with a boarding shotgun, those are both great tactics. You're laying the foundation for those tactics with your deployment. That's the point. If you pay attention and allow yourself to attend to the details, you can set those traps up from the get-go. And yeah, it's probably more of a veteran skill. You're not going to do this coming into the game and and have it work. It's, it's going to take you some time. You're going to have to see how AD troops are coming in, how Van, where Van Zant style troops are coming in to really take advantage of this. And oftentimes you'll really have to sell it. So it's, it's not, a, not a beginner tip, but you know, it's a pro gamer move. Um, another basic for, that we've kind of touched on, but we could um, drill down a little bit more, is be very mindful of your long-range weapons and how much exposure you are setting them up for in ARO. I know that the instinct is to sit that total reaction bot up high and cover as much board as you possibly can. But you have to recognize that your opponent, if they're good and you want to always give your opponent the, the credit, um, anticipate that they are good, that they will have the tools to know how to deal with those kinds of troops, those kinds of situations. So it might be preferable in most cases to limit the amount of exposure your hard AROs are taking so that they are specifically locking down lanes and lines of approach. Any thoughts on that, guys? I will run a Noctifer that's, that's looking all the way across the table, but I'm not going to bring it out unless the, my, either A, my opponent has only a couple of orders left, or B, he walks an entire five-man link where I'm going to blow them all up, or some other thing like I'm going to get rolled by something very powerful and I, ha I have to put this piece out to maybe psych them out a little bit. But I think it's very important that you choose the correct piece if you're going to have a piece that shoots all the way across the table, like specifically like a, f a defensive link team with you know a pair of missile launchers is something that I would consider looking all the way across the table. But even then, you're probably going to get more use out of it if they only see maybe halfway up the table, like to the objectives, instead of all the way across the table. Because in the end, MSV2 through smoke, while you ignore the penalty... They're, you're only going to shoot one, one guy back at them. So they're probably going to have better chance to hit you with higher dice than your two shots coming back. Like The best ARO pieces in the game are usually going to be outgunned by an active piece, especially in a five-man link. So it's, it'd be, be really cognizant of 
what you're leaving out because he's going to pick the correct choice to take shots at you. He's not going to throw combi rifle shots at your missile launcher. He's going to put burst five HMG and a link team from cover into your missile launcher. Always be mindful of the fact that the active turn is just in quite a bit more powerful than the reactive turn. So the point of contesting approaches is to delay and slow your opponent down. Also, when I'm going first, I'm usually, there's a couple other general practices when I'm deploying first that I have fallen into. And this isn't like across the board, but I would say if I'm going first, I like to put all my guys prone. And the thinking here is I don't yet get to see how my opponent has counter deployed me. And so rather than getting caught out, I'd rather create as little visibility for him to engage me as possible and then get to pick and choose how I activate and approach him following that. So Ian, do you use prone when you deploy? Yes and no. It entirely depends on the piece. I utilize prone a lot when it comes to some of my longer range stuff in order to hide it from my opponent. But a lot of my guys that are infiltrated up, I don't put prone specifically because they're usually camo troopers that might have access to ambush or mine layer. And so I want to use those not prone to disguise more what they are. And so my opponent doesn't know if it is a real guy or a mine or a nobody. And it just helps to waste their orders and making decisions about what that might be. So it just kind of depends on the situation of the unit and the map and the mission. Yeah, that's a really good point. I think the commonality with what you just you shared and what Nate just shared in terms of some of his philosophy is camo and hidden deployment are huge tools in deploying because it allows you to determine or condition the the rules of engagement. And I think that's a, a big bonus. Um, units that have those skills are pretty av- advantageous in giving you flexibility in what you want to do deployment-wise. Finally, I would just say uh, when I'm going second, I've noticed over time I've developed a habit of I deploy deep in my zone. For me, it's a philosophy that One, it's just that much further my opponent has to go to get at me. Two, it protects my back line better. Having your back up against the deployment zone or as close as you can, you're keeping everything in front of you. And then I love to stay out on the edges too. I tend not to, uh, especially when going second, I tend not to cluster in the middle of the board because there's just too much that can get at you from different vectors. And so the more I can limit the avenues of approach my opponent is coming at my guys, the better for me. So that's one other thing I'd throw out there. I would say that I don't do that. I like to have my guys spread out across my deployment zone, just in that a lot of times guys do need to move forward at some point, and it's going to be order expenditure to do that from the back. Uh, but at the same time, like I don't castle a corner. I never like refused flank. I think that those just creates a t- more target-rich environment for an opponent. I want to have everything spread out. I want them to have to keep spending orders to get to all my guys. Uh, I think I'm going to run on like a broken record because that's all I talk about is making them spend orders. But I, I feel like it's the most important thing you can do when it's not your turn 
to hamper your opponent. So I mean, I, I like to have a nice spread throughout, covering the back, covering the front, covering the objectives a lot of times, and I, which I find difficult to do sometimes from from way in the back. Though if you have a sniper or missile launcher or something, sometimes you can find that lane that will touch that touch that uh, you know mid table objective from the back end. Mistake I seem to think I see a lot is that. Oftentimes when we've put together lists, we have our order monkeys or our, yeah, our cheerleaders. And we think of them primarily in that role, but then we forget that they're useful in deployment. Every time you hide something completely, that means it doesn't have eyes on anything. That means that's that much more room for your opponent to move in on you. And so don't negate how lethal a combi rifle still can be. Don't negate don't minimize how even having a helper bot set up somewhere looking at your table edge or your de- deployment zone. The more eyes you can get on your deployment without exposing those troops to ranged attack, the more you'll be able to re- resist once someone gets in on you. One of the reasons I don't leave a lot of things prone Anything that has a combi rifle, I try and find a 16-inch lane for him to cover. If it's got a boarding shotgun, I try and get him up to the corner where I know somebody's going to come around. Or keep him eight, w- close to the edge of the board so if, if uh, AD troop comes on, uh, I'll have access to that. I think it's incredibly valuable to have any piece that can speed bump your opponent. Have a shot is going to be better than uh, not having any shots at all and letting them outmaneuver you. Yeah, the key is just setting them up in that optimal range band that like you were talking about. All right, let's then transition from just talking about some of these basics. Now that we've covered that, maybe we can get into some more corner case situations or maybe like you were referring to them, Nate, a more veteran tool or tip or situational engagement that comes up when talking about deployment. Like the first thing I'm thinking about is how do you guys think about deploying your lieutenant? Uh, I generally put my lieutenant right up front in the link team, ready to kick ass and take names. I'm a fan of using active lieutenants that have awesome you know, weapons like uh, HMG or something like that that can get bonuses, but I also back that up by having access to a chain of command trooper to pick up the slack when the lieutenant does eventually die. Yeah, I was going to say, like, what? (laughs) But beyond that, it depends on the list, but there's oftentimes, you know, I hide the lieutenant somewhere and sometimes have a couple of decoy lieutenants, per se, that are the cheap basic trooper profile that is there. He's a cheerleader. He's there to generate orders, but by deploying him, you know, to cover the back line... And he he could appear to be the lieutenant, and you know if, if somebody's trying to headhunt your lieutenant and they go after him instead of your real lieutenant, then okay, I've may I've lost a cheap order, but they haven't gotten my lieutenant, and they probably spent a lot of orders trying to get to him. I always shell game my lieutenant, like always. If it's a if it's a you know a ten point fusilier, then I'm going to take two ten point fusiliers. And one of them is going to be hidden off by himself, prone on top of a building hard to get to. The other one's going to be on the other side of the table or in that link team. And it's going to, I'm going to flip a coin as to where he is each time. So that way 
someone can't, can't no even like somebody I play a lot is not going to be able to take get, take a read on oh Nate's got the fusilier in the tower again there's his lieutenant I like camo lieutenants and then I like putting out something that looks like a lieutenant but my lieutenant's actually not you know in a marker state yeah and chain of command is great also especially if you can keep your chain of command away from your lieutenant I, f- I feel like a lot of times. I'll have set up a, a game and I'll realize that I put them too close together. So yeah, keep keeping them apart is useful, but also at the same time, like if you're shell gaming, maybe you don't do that if your opponent is is trying to call bluffs. So yeah, it's just play shell games to keep them away from you so you don't have that problem. Yeah, I really like that. Say on the chain of command, uh, there are a few chain of command profiles that are also have camo. So that helps to hide that just one more level that your opponent doesn't necessarily even know that you have chain of command on the table. Yeah, I really like both those comments. I also, um, as someone who plays Alif, my lieutenant is always pretty obvious. If you know the faction, you're more likely than not going to know who my lieutenant is. So one of the tricks I use is I keep a lot of eyeballs on my lieutenant. I rarely hide them by themselves with no support. I think that actually is a mistake. I see people doing that a lot where they just tuck their lieutenant away up in a building or in a room by itself. And in my experience, that may work four times out of five and be no problem. But if your opponent has brought something with the tools to go dig that lieutenant out and do it quickly and efficiently, if it gets in a one-on-one situation with the lieutenant, your lieutenant's going to die. And then that truncates your whole next turn. So I like having babysitters or other things that are like looking at my lieutenant. I want eyeballs on at all times. So at least there are options for me. How do you guys deploy your link teams when you're running sectorials, both defensively and active? I don't run active teams, so that's really easy to deploy. Like I'll do three, I'll do three man in like Toha or Spiral or uh, run like run like a Harris and then a three man core because they're easy to deploy. They don't take up a whole bunch of space. But I'm just I'm terrible at active link teams, so I don't do it. That's good knowing your wheelhouse, uh, Ian. You run actives. Yeah, it's important to analyze the board during deployment and figure out where your best lane of advance is so that you can deploy to do go up that lane of advance to get to where you need to be. Now, this is going to be very different depending on whether you're deploying first or second, because if you're deploying first, you're kind of going in blind. You are going to probably want to deploy your link team a little bit more conservatively because you don't know how your opponent's going to counter deploy. But if you're deploying second and they're already down, you have more options as far as being able to counter deploy them and get in there how you need to be, get eyes on what you need to be or close to so that, you know, minimum order expenditure that when you do go active, you can, you know, do one move and be gunning a guy down and just keeping in mind how that setup of the table is to accomplish what you need to get done. Nate, what advice would you give someone if they're anticipating they're going up against an Oniwaban or an impersonation model? How would you approach that problem with deployment? Spread your models out. 
and make sure that everybody sees at least one other person. You're gonna you're gonna lose guys to impersonation and Oniwaban. You're you're going to. It's 100% gonna happen. To keep Oniwaban away from your key key pieces, mines. To keep personators away from your key key pieces, not a whole lot you can do. What you want to be able to do is kill it as it comes out and kills one of your guys from you know the buddy system. Yeah, basically, those are expensive units in and of themselves. So a good player will be able to get them in on their target, and you just want to punish them the moment they reveal themselves. Yeah, and the, the other thing that I do against impersonators and advanced infiltration pieces is I practice being in loss of lieutenant. It's not a deployment skill, but if these if they're going to hunt your lieutenant and you're going to lose that lieutenant, be ready for that and know how to play a turn in loss of lieutenant. Hey, that's a good um, suggestion. How about practicing deployment? Do you guys ever run through practicing deployment? Someone asked me that recently, and I have to confess, I haven't ever practiced deployment. My main practice is almost always through playing, but I can really see the potential value to do that. Do you guys ever do anything like that? Oh yeah. Uh, I'll, I usually do it for newer players and it's kind of like in magic where you've got a deck and you want to see how it works. So you play like the first few turns, just seeing what comes up in your hand without actually playing the game. I don't play magic. This is, but from a long time ago, this is what I remember. So with a newer player, I'll usually set up first. I'll have them set up second. And then I'll kind of go through, like, here's how I'm going to spend a few orders coming up here. I'm going to try and put this down. Like, I don't understand why this guy is standing up. And just kind of go through kind of a fake first turn. And then re-rack. Like, pull everything, start over again, and see how it comes out better. There could be some advantage to this in seeing how someone might come and take you apart. But at the same time, like... If you don't take anything from it, don't bother doing it. If it's just uh, an advanced player showing you how he's going to take you apart, <laughs> like stop, don't don't do that because that'll just be disheartening and it'll just be psychologically damaging to you. But a lot of time, I'll walk up and someone will be like, "How how do you think about what do you think about my deployment?" And I'll be like, eh, "I'd probably put these guys down. I would have probably only covered to here, stuff like that," and then tell them to re rack. I said I don't usually practice, but that's a good point that a lot of the debriefing that happens after games is a kind of practice deployment. What are your other options? What are the things that could have been done? Uh, walking that through with other players, that's a, a form of practicing for sure. With a new player, I like to sneak into the table, like not when I'm playing, but when two other people are playing, one of them is new. I like to go in after deployment and just kind of show them what maybe they should have done, and then they'll they'll usually either kind of do that or re-rack and, and start again. Uh, the veteran players don't care. And the new player, you know, if he was about to make a huge mistake, it's easier for a third party to come and tell them that, hey, man, this is not going to work than an opponent telling you this is not going to work. And that just feels a little shady. Another um, tip for deployment that I have been leaning into lately is the idea of pinning your opponents. And what I mean by that is I like being able to set up AROs on my opponent if they're going first in particular, where I've got eyes on maybe two sides of a link team. And if they activate their link, someone's going to get a free shot, for instance. 
Or another example would be something that was done to me by Nick Bear uh, recently, where I had deployed my linked HMG prone on a walkway, and he set up his two hard AROs. He had a Tanko missile launcher and a brawler with the multi-spectral visor level two sniper. And he was able to get eyes on where my HMG would be if I ever stood up. And so I was kind of pinned by those two sets of AROs and I had to dislodge one of them before I could activate my HMG. And so he did a really good job of pinning me down by getting multiple sets of eyes on an important piece. And so if you can forecast how your opponent's going to be deploying, sometimes you can catch them out, um, especially if you're using template weapons. That's a pretty common practice for pinning, I think, is residual damage that comes from a template landing on something, causing more damage than they want to expose themselves to. Yeah, I'd say uh, if you've got two different guys seeing two different people in their link team, uh, that's probably not a good deployment for you. It's probably a bad deployment for them. Even an active team, you like, you shouldn't have two different angles on that team. At least not not at the beginning. Like that. once they move out a ways, sure. But like to begin with, that's that's rough. So look, I was playing a buddy of mine, Brady, and he had his active team. He had a Kreza, a Hollow Man, and three other support units, and. I had counter-deployed him with a linked missile bot with eyes on his Kreeza, but then I had a heavy rocket launcher post-human Mark IV with eyes on the backside of his link on Perseus. So no matter what, if he activates Kreeza, there's a free shot on Perseus or the other link members uh, in the back. Um, That's what I mean by pinning, that he was kind of caught between a rock and a hard place in that situation because any kind of activation of the link got two templates on his link immediately. That's what I'm saying. Like that sounds like poor deployment on his part to leave enough pieces out to get pinned. Like, like, yeah, yeah, you capitalized on it, but I think that was no offense to Brady, but I'm I'm sure he would argue that that was probably not his best deployment of those pieces. Absolutely. That was one of the things that we then kind of unpacked later for sure. Yeah. But it happens to the best of us, even like Nick, he got me. So, I mean, you have to capitalize on mistakes, right? That's part of deployment too. Like if you see someone making a huge mistake, capitalize on that bad boy. Like absolutely. If you, if you can pin a link team to make a active link team ineffective, that's gold. It's money. Yep. For sure. Take that to the bank. Here's a question for both of you. Is there ever a scenario where you would completely null deploy and what i mean by this is just completely turtle leave nothing out looking not contest the board at all uh someone asked me that recently i I think that's the second mistake that people make first they leave everything up and then leave everything down you can't leave someone to have full board control like that because they're going to run all the way up on you and then they're going to put a bunch of stuff in suppressing fire and fork your link and it's going to be it's going to be brutal to leave all of your pieces down you can't let them have full board control. So no, for me, it's a, absolutely not. How about you, Ian? I'd say that it's almost always an absolutely not. However, I have run a few lists that are extremely close combat and you know short range template oriented 
that have access to smoke. And I've experimented a little bit with some success with uh, completely hiding everything during deployment. And if my opponent moves forward, they're that much closer to me smacking them in the face with a close combat weapon. And I'm not saying it's a good tactic. I'm not saying it's necessarily effective. But under the extremely right circumstances of your list, the opponent's list, how you've both deployed and the way that the board is set up and even the mission, which is going to be way too many factors for this to be reliable in any way, shape, or form. Yeah, it could work, but it's not going to be reliable by any stretch of the imagination. We can't talk about deployment without talking about the strategic use of command tokens. Where do those tools come into play when how you think about deployment? If I'm going second, I'm taking two orders away, and that's it. The orders are going to be from whatever pool I think is most dangerous, or sometimes I'll just take it from the small pool to make sure that that pool can't do anything at all. But that's pretty much my command token usage. I don't use them when I'm going first. I don't think any of those abilities are useful to me. So holding an extra unit in reserve, you don't find helpful? Uh, Not usually, because I... I honestly, I, I try to play the game where I don't need a reserve because I feel like the reserve is kind of that gotcha, gotcha, gotcha back. I'm going to already know where that reserve is usually going to go and what he's going to cover, regardless of what they put down. So having two of them, I think I'd rather have the command token. And I'm not saying that I wouldn't ever use it because I think there's some lists that I could build, like a double Noctifer list or something that could be fun or double Speculo list that would be hilarious using that. So I'm not, I'm not going to say it's never, but for the most part, I'm keeping my command tokens for other things. Yeah, this is where I would be a hard disagree, at least on that, the use of holding the second reserve. Now, this might be conditioned because I play Alif and I have access to posthumans, but the ability for me to deploy three or four uh, models after I've seen my opponent counter-deploy me, so that counter to the counter-deploy has been so valuable. I very much prize, just like I like the use of Strategos as a rule, I really prize that ability to see where my opponent is and then shore up gaps or exploit holes that I'm seeing in my opponent's deployment. So I, it's almost an auto use for me when I'm going first. I mean, if I could deploy most of a combat group in reserve, I'd probably go with that too. Ian, how about you and strategic use of command tokens? Uh, Almost always it's going to be to remove the opponent's uh, two orders from their pool. That said, under certain circumstances, like, for instance, if you were running a superior infiltration model like Uxia that you managed to land in a very good spot, you know, right outside the enemy's deployment zone that has, you know, eyes on something that's going to make it hard for them, Utilizing the uh, token to put that model into suppression becomes more attractive at that point, but it's one of the only times I think I would even use that. The only time I've used that is in a similar situation with Andromeda, where I dropped her in on some pretty juicy targets, and she's already got mimetism and and her guard and all that stuff. Nate's a hard no on this one. I know that. If I could use more than one to put a bunch of things in suppressing fire, but like putting one thing in suppressing fire to lose a command token, maybe like if the situation was right, maybe I just I don't see it being that ideal. I don't know, maybe uh, maybe something with a 360 visor to prevent AD drops. 
but like your your range bracket is getting reduced with that so it's it's not going to be as useful because someone's just going to catch you at the long range and you're going to lose it and you just spent a command token to get it so it's it's going to be very very situational for me and for the most part i'm keeping my command tokens for moving guys in into pools any other situational cases or deployment issues that you see mistakes that are happening that you want to address or correct for people impersonators don't throw the dice and try to get them into the deployment zone yeah just don't take that risk what's the point place them from the half line up to the 12 is fine uh, a lot of times i place them covering the uh, like an objective instead or just outside of the deployment zone is, is a better choice Throwing a dice at something that you don't have to throw a dice for is probably a bad idea. Because if you if you fail that, uh, that's is just not worth it. So that's one of the that's one of my pro tips. Especially when one order will get you where you were going to get probably anyways. So outside of like uh, an avatar, and I can put a speculo behind it, and I've got two speculos to try. <laughs> Maybe, but for the most part, yeah, just put them at the 12 line. Don't roll because it's not going, it's going to go very badly at a key moment for you. In a, a key game, you're going to lose because of that. Cool. Let's uh, wrap this puppy up. But before we get to our final thoughts, we do want to take a moment to say we are very excited to see Metachemistry community growing. It's great to see the conversations happening on Discord. Uh, love the banter and the strategic thinking that's taken place there. So excited about that. If you want to support what we're doing and be a part of that community, join us on Discord. It's free and it really serves as a supportive community for the Game of Infinity. If you want to support the show, subscribe to the podcast and maybe share it on Facebook. Just get the word out as best you can. If you want to support us in a more concrete way, you can always sponsor us through Patreon. We've got several different levels of commitment, some of which give you exclusive access to additional content. We've got a couple of different extra bonus podcasts that we have made available to all our Patreon supporters. So you can avail yourselves of that if you become a Patreon. And it also just grants you access to some of us, the creators. So we do want to take a moment to make a new announcement. And that is we have a sponsor for our podcast, our first sponsor. So we want to give our thanks to Mo Games for sponsoring the podcast. Mo Games is an FLGS based in Santa Cruz and an online supplier of all things Infinity at great prices. As a part of its sponsorship, Mo will be providing a $40 gift card that will be raffled off once a month for our patrons. So definitely you're going to want to jump on Patreon as well. And we're really excited to have a sponsorship. Nathan. Ian, what are your final thoughts as we're signing off? As, you know, deployment is a very important skill to master, obviously, because this is the very basis of how you're going to perform in the game starts at the deployment phase. So get out there, play a lot of games, practice deployment, play around with the options that your faction offers as far as how they deploy. You know, whether that's, you know, your different link teams, your forward deployments, your infiltrators, camouflage, you know, you name it. Explore your options and kind of figure out and fine tune what that can do for you. Then you'll get to come to master the skill. Uh, I think one of the things that people should do is if you're having trouble with deployment, 
ask the veteran why he's deploying the things that he is and and where. So play him, get it up on the table and say like, you know, why is this link team here and not in this perch that I would have put it up here? And then they can describe to you like what, what their thinking behind it was, especially after the game. Take note of deployment things that you thought were impressive and just talk to your opponent about those things because a lot of veterans have a lot to say about the deployment phase. So, you know, use them as a resource. Yeah, really. And oftentimes you don't even know what they know until you start probing. You know, they're not going to just necessarily come out and dictate to you how you should be deploying. But if you invite that commentary, oftentimes you might be surprised at how willing your fellow players are in wanting to help you improve your game. So hopefully you guys found this conversation helpful. Obviously, there's always more to learn and to grow, even when it comes to something as basic and foundational as deployment. But we will be connecting with you in a couple weeks. Until then, this has been Andrew, Ian, and Nathan. And that's the meta.